0: Hello and welcome to Fearless, the Human Rights Defenders podcast. I'm Claire McGillivray and I'm delighted to be joined today by Naomi McAuliffe, Amnesty International's Programme Director for Scotland. The Fearless Project series is exploring what life is like for human rights defenders in Scotland, who they are, the challenges they face and what we need in order to protect them to allow human rights defenders to flourish. Naomi, hello, and thank you for joining me.
1: Hello there. No, thanks very much for inviting me.
0: Over the past few weeks, I've been on a journey. I've been speaking to people across Scotland from different sectors, different walks of life, people who I would describe as grassroots human rights defenders. But as I've experienced, they might not always refer to themselves as that. I've been doing this as part of the Atlantic Fellows for Economic and Social Equity programme and I've been finding out research into what human rights defenders need to flourish in Scotland and I want to share with you and explore some of the themes that have come up again and again in those discussions. Um, The first thing I wanted to explore with you is around the incredible people that are active in standing up for human rights defenders across a wide spectrum of issues. What strikes me is that all are doing human rights work for the benefit of others, and the wins when they come are rightly celebrated. But many of the activists
1: don't describe themselves as human rights defenders. Is that a surprise to you? It's not a surprise, no. Um, I think human rights defender is a term that's very popular um, on an international level. And it's certainly popular um, around Africa and South America. But in um, the UK and Scotland, even across Europe, it's not a term that's generally used. Um, At Amnesty, we ran a campaign on human rights defenders called Brave, which came to an end about two years ago. And part of that campaign was actually to try and do a PR job on the term human rights defender uh, to get people to use it more so again then when we're talking to politicians or to uh, to other people in, in positions of power it was a term that they understood and they recognized. I'm not sure that we were completely successful in that so there's still work to be done um, but yeah I wouldn't be surprised that people it's not a term that, that people generally use.
0: Is that an issue do you think for us in terms of what does it say around the status of human rights defenders in Scotland?
1: Yeah, I think it is a bit of an issue. I think it's a very helpful um, term. I think it's it's very strong. Um, it's something that when people use it, um, other people tend to sit up and listen to them. Uh, and also there's an international framework around it. So there's a UN declaration on human rights defenders. There's a special rapporteur. Um, there's there's other jurisdictions that have got laws, particularly for the protection of human rights defenders. So I really hope it's something that gains currency Whereas I think that often within the Scottish context, people who are doing human rights work don't see themselves in that way. And other people possibly see them as campaigners, activists or just troublemakers in general. (laughs) Yeah, that theme of troublemaker certainly
0: came up um, quite a lot during the conversations um, that I was having. And, And, you know, part of that was around the heavy toll that actually standing up for human rights takes on folk personally and professionally, um, I know that I heard um, people talking about losing their jobs because of the, the work that they're doing, speaking out, or being intimidated if the organisation that they work for um, is funded by the state. Is that something which the international framework on human rights defenders could support? people with in scotland
1: absolutely i mean the uh, the declaration goes into both the um, rights and responsibilities of the state in order to protect people who are speaking out and protect them from intimidation and harassment but also the kind of rights and responsibilities of everyone in society as well like we need to all come together to to both celebrate and recognize the work that human rights defenders and how it is not just kind of promoting their own personal circumstances, it's something that is actually beneficial for the whole of society. Um, but yes, I think it is really helpful to, to kind of shine a light on this because it is often hidden. And I think also human rights defenders themselves don't see each other and they don't see how common these kind of pressures and problems are to each other. The more that we connect them up, the more that people realise they're actually part of a, of a community and a network and they can give each other peer support through that as well. And that certainly something something that we really kind of promote and in places where human rights defender as a as a concept is is well known in places like south america or africa there are human rights defender organizations that are there to both help build resilience to provide support but also to connect these these hrds up with each other um, and the kind of support and solidarity that comes from that
0: and does some of that support internationally um, help to celebrate the wins. Because I know when I was chatting to folk, um, they were saying, when we get the wins, oh, it feels It feels great. How how do international human rights defenders do that and what does Amnesty do to support those wins being
1: celebrated? Definitely. I mean, for all campaigning organisations, you know that we we always want to celebrate the wins because often we're getting in touch with our members and supporters and getting them to take action on something really awful that's happening. Um, And people need to know that when they're taking action and when they're working, that it's having an effect and that it's having a positive impact. So Absolutely, we need to keep um, celebrating these wins because it is hard and it's a real toll and it's real kind of um, it takes a, a huge amount of time and energy for people to do this kind of work. So, we have to celebrate those wins just to help people carry on and keep motivated. Yeah, I know um, one of the themes that
0: emerged is how difficult it can be um, to challenge the status quo of the system, including public authorities blocking individuals from participation and you you know you mentioned earlier around people being seen as a a troublemaker um, if they continually raise human rights issues Um, and some folk have said that they had a heavy toll on their mental health and physical health from the continual battle to to just try to get justice. Um, have you got a response on that? Because that maybe is a bit surprising if we're talking about human rights defenders in the international sphere. There seems to be... We're in a different context here in Scotland. But is that a surprise that there's difficulties from um, public authorities Blocking participation or, um, or or not really supporting people to speak
1: out and speak truth to power. That's that's not a surprise at all because I think what human rights defenders do, what all campaigners, activists, um, everyone else does, is uh, challenge the status quo and challenge power. Um, and people who are in positions of power don't like that. <laughs> they don't like being open to that kind of change and, and to changing it. Uh, so I'm not surprised that it's um, something. That, that human rights defenders are coming across is that that resistance to change and that resistance to take on um, the, the criticisms that they're levelling at them. And often you see something that, when you stand back, actually looks like a, a tactic and a strategy uh, by those in power in order to kind of run down individuals just through exhaustion. So you will often get not kind of overt threats coming from uh, whether it's local authorities or other kind of duty bearers people in position of power but it will be just a steady stream trying to kind of um, erode away people's resilience so constant letters um, uh, asking um, claiming that they're not paying taxes or that they're not paying um, a certain kind of bills or um, in order to do something they need to provide hundreds of pages of paperwork for something all as a way as, an, as a tactic to try and take the uh, um the the resilience, the, the energy um, away from human rights defenders. And I think Amnesty and a lot of other organisations have come to this quite late in understanding the, the kind of therapeutic support that individuals need. I think we always saw human rights defenders as, you know, really strong, really resilient. And, you know, we had to provide things like media training or legal training for them. And we didn't enough think about the mental and emotional toil on people and actually Actually how much um, support people need from a therapeutic point of view and we're getting better at that now so we're certainly kind of providing or sourcing both access to specialist care, um, but also self-care type training, um, and and giving people the space to to not just kind of talk about the the content um, of of their work, but also the impacts that it's having on them and their families. So yeah, I think it's something that we can definitely improve on, but it's it's just as important as providing skills support is providing that kind of um, uh, kind of therapeutic or uh like personal support to individuals too. That's great to hear because um we'll talk
0: a little bit later about what some of the defenders felt they needed um to flourish in Scotland and certainly um dealing with that power constantly and that wearing down of um of individuals because of structures or because of bureaucracy or because of just blockages in access to justice or another hurdle to to jump through or um, not having access to, to legal support as well, I think, came up um, particularly as an issue. One thing that seemed to be emerging, though, as well, was where people um, work for organisations which are funded by the state... There were some subtexts around um, not being able to speak truth to power and, and maybe not overt threats of um, pulling funding from the organisation but done in a bit more of a, of a subtle way where um, folk who are on, on, on the front line supporting human rights found that they couldn't speak truth to power and i wonder if you had anything to say around that because scotland's quite a small country and we we know we know each other quite often in the third sector that i work in and and, and you work in uh, i wondered if if you'd experienced that or people had spoken to you around some of those subtle more subtle uses of power um which are maybe is is just a perception
1: mm-hmm. is it uh yes i mean i think I, i've definitely i've definitely heard that and i've definitely kind of um uh, found that in some of our own interactions as an organization with um politicians with with civil servants is almost a kind of um uh, a feeling of being personally hurt when they get criticism from an organization <laughs> um and i think that it is and again that in, in itself can be quite corrosive because people kind of think oh well you know i won't have as much access um to, to government or to politicians um, if I'm not kind of um, like massaging their ego enough and things like that. So even if it's not a direct threat around funding, I think there's also a bit of a, um, a threat around uh, kind of co-opting uh, organisations and and making sure that, you know, we're all working together. So before you criticise us publicly, let's just have a private conversation about it over here. So I do think it's something that we need to be stronger in setting boundaries with government government and being very, um, and with, you know, local government, uh, um, any kind of public bodies in saying that, you know, it is healthy for us to to criticise and for us to um, kind of challenge uh, government policy. And it's important that that happens, like it leads to good law and good policy is having that kind of very healthy um, public debate around things. But but yes, I think that that's something that, that we've really got to work on and that government politicians, civil servants themselves need to take on as um, how to to cope with critical friends. And, and that, that is something that's often kind of banded about. They want to kind of forget the critical part of the critical friends, though. Um, so, yeah, I think that... It, that's something we, I think, can push on much harder in terms of having stronger protections around the independence of organisations who receive government funding. And we can probably push far more that in those kind of funding applications or contracts or whatever, it's very clearly stipulated um, that the government will respect the independence of the organisations who are um, delivering services or, or whatever it is that that they're doing. Um, because I'm hearing it enough that it seems to be a common problem. So we might need to look at any kind of stronger safeguards for individuals and organisations because of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly what I had been hearing around, um, particularly organisations who are delivering services Um, For public authorities, in a sense, third sector organisations and where procurement has has meant that their SLA says, actually, you need to um, not bring the organisation into disrepute. And that seems to be where um, the crux of that issue is. So, you know, I'd certainly welcome um, a wider discussion around that about how do we protect the third sector in Scotland to be that critical friend and enable um, progress in, in a culture of human rights in Scotland, as well as um, looking at ourselves in the third sector and saying, well, we're also duty bearers. Um, you know, we're also there to be a rights-based organisation and, and we have to contribute to, to the wider context of um, building a culture in Scotland which respects and protects and fulfills human and th- rights.
1: And that's that's exactly the kind of um, example of where bringing an organisation into disrepute, like, usually that means don't go out and get drunk and have, you know, pictures of you all over the papers wearing the, like, logo of the organisation. That's bringing an organisation in disrepute. You know, criticising and saying that things need to improve and that something, like, broke down and someone's human rights have been um, undermined. That's not bringing it into disrepute. That's telling the truth. And so I think that the broadening these kind of definitions in a way that protects those in power is something that really needs to be challenged. So that's big, national programme then to for
0: Amnesty to be involved in own and <laughs> talking you into more more work which will have a big strategic impact. But I think certainly things like that um, could maybe be looked at in Scotland's National Action Plan for Human Rights because this seems to be quite a strategic um, point that people at the grassroots are, are are raising. One of the things that really surprised me in chatting to human rights defenders was around personal safety. Um, I was shocked to hear that people active in civil society in Scotland had received death threats or threats of violence against them. Um, I wasn't sure that I really expected that as part of um, uncovering conversations in, in this um, work. Does that surprise you?
1: Um, sadly it doesn't uh, just because of the the nature of the kind of human rights issues that amnesty are involved in um, we do tend to work at the kind of more extreme end and so we have come across um, these kind of cases previously particularly um, with uh, individuals in northern ireland for example a number of journalists who have received death threats journalists who have been murdered in the past um, and even academics now that we've put out public statements about the, the harassment and the threats that they're getting but also in scotland we produced um a report it was a global report but included evidence from scotland um, back in 2018 a report called toxic twitter which was about the harassment that women got online and on social media and places like twitter obviously um, but also you know facebook youtube as well um, because they were women, um, and and particularly those with intersecting identities, so particularly women of colour, uh, the the threats, the abuse that they were getting, and everyone that we interviewed were people who were putting their head above the parapet. So they were politicians, um, journalists, campaigners as well, and some of the um, uh, the abuse that they were getting and the chilling effect that it was having not only on them as individuals and in the. World, that they did and how they interacted in a kind of public space um, on social media but also the kind of impact it was having on other women uh, particularly younger women who were seeing this happening and the chilling effect that that has for um, new up-and-coming human rights defenders not wanting to get involved in politics or not necessarily wanting to be a journalist on controversial issues uh, because they know the kind of abuse that they're likely to get Um, and that kind of chilling effect um, that has really does uh, stifle freedom of expression um, and the kind of work that human rights defenders do. And we're, we're hearing this more and more is that it's the kind of smear campaigns that HRDs face online that they find it the most difficult to, to deal with, because before threats might have come in certain kind of areas or you know when they were out on a protest or something, but now it's coming into their phone, in their hand, in their house, um, and that can be really, really difficult to deal with?
0: Um, That certainly came out in the conversations that I had around people who were human rights defenders were giving their whole life to this work Um, you know there there didn't seem to be that much of a separation between work and life balance that actually they were bringing their whole energies to this Mm -hmm. work so that when difficulties happened or when they were trolled on social media that the impact then was that they couldn't separate their home life to their activist life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that had impact on their families, on their children, on their, their wider social, social networks. And and that, for me, was quite chilling. Mm-hmm. That a, An opportunity for us to think around, actually, what do we need to do then to support people who... Um, are in that space? You know, what's the practical things that we can do as allies when we see that happening Mm -hmm. online? What's the institutional responses that we need from from the organisations that we work with? And Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you had kind of anything to say around that about what what we need to do to be allies of human rights defenders when we see that happening.
1: Definitely. I mean, yeah, there's lots in there around kind of um, being active bystanders and and how we can kind of get involved. Sometimes, again, it can be very difficult um, because people are afraid that then they're going to be the target of abuse as well. Um, but certainly there is about reaching out and supporting people who are suffering a, a kind of pylon or or other kind of abuse or threats to them. Um, Also providing kind of resilience training. So this is, and again, resilience is a a difficult term because, again, no one should be living like this. No no one should have to to be resilient. But at the same time, there are moves that people can take to... um, uh, to kind of minimise the impact that it's having on them. So, you know, making sure that they, you know, don't have the Twitter app on their phone, so they're not constantly looking at it, like if uh, particularly at times when something's uh, flaring up on social media, locking their account for, for a time. And I think some um, uh, human rights defenders often feel that they have to be just permanently available uh, to their kind of rights holder group or their community or whatever and just realising that they don't have to be like they do need to have some time to themselves because that will make them more effective human rights defenders they will be more effective campaigners if they take that time out to look after themselves as well and and to create those kind of boundaries and something that um we do internationally and something that we can possibly think about what would be the equivalent of doing domestically or within Scotland um, is that around the world there are lots of um, human rights defender relocation schemes and these are um, kind of schemes whereby uh, HRD who is suffering harassment um, and you know a terrible time at home can be relocated sometimes within their country but also across borders for a temporary time to either wait for something to blow over over or to just have some respite and recuperate and um, and build themselves up again or use the opportunity to get some skills training or, or anything else. And that's something that we support in, in Scotland and, and in the UK. There's, there's various other schemes in uh, Spain and the Netherlands as well. But they're very much about kind of uh, human rights defenders from overseas coming to um, European countries for that respite. And I think we need to think more about actually what kind of schemes should be available for domestic human rights defenders who need time out themselves, um, and, and what can we do and how can we support that? Because um, people find it incredibly beneficial that we're always oversubscribed to these schemes. Um, so, so, yeah, it's something that there's clearly a need for. And so how, how do we record incidents um,
0: that human rights defenders face in Scotland? You know, you see in the news lots, lots of information about um, countries who are repressive in terms of human rights. We don't see that so much in Scotland. And I wondered if there's a way that we're actually recording incidents against
1: human rights defenders, no matter what kind of level they're at. We're, we're not. And part of the reason why that's happening is because we don't define people as human rights defenders. And if people aren't defined as them, then we can't count them. So so yeah, it's another reason why having um, human rights defender as a term that we use more commonly is that then we can start counting these kind of incidents. So no, we would have different things. We would have um, statistics on how many um, protesters have been arrested or prosecuted. That would be kind of one set. You might get Get, um individuals who are making complaints to the police around death threats that they're getting or whatever but again the police wouldn't necessarily be um uh counting them as human rights defenders or attacks against human rights defenders they will just be um part of their general statistics on um, harassment or um uh, threats of abuse or however however they might count these things so yeah I think that that is a real problem in in other um, countries where a human rights defender is is a more common used term, they are able to count um, the amounts of incidents of threats and harassment and incidents of murder as well. So in a place like Colombia, which has um, huge threats to human rights defenders, um, the, the Human Rights Commission, uh, uh, Inter-American Commission as well, are uh, able to collect statistics on how many um, attacks and murders there are of human rights defenders. But that is something that, yeah, we just don't collect in this country at all.
0: That's interesting, because I know one of the human rights defenders that I spoke to had talked about um, garages being torched because they were raising particular issues um, around um, a local planning issue. Um, and they felt they had nowhere to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, And I think that's the thing is that often, you know, it's some of these attacks are very hard to pinpoint that that definitely happened because of the human rights work that they do. Um, So we do need to have a criteria by which we measure those things. It could be that, you know, someone was um, attacked just randomly on the street and they do also happen to be a kind of high profile campaigner on something. So we do need to be able to identify when something is directly linked to someone's um, human rights work. But again, if someone is very well known, they're very notable um, in what they're doing it's it's often very obvious that it's something that that is attached to their work as to why they've been targeted. I think what's
0: positive
1: from that though,
0: is that there is an international framework already out there that we could maybe adapt in yeah. Scotland to take cognizance of you know the context here in Scotland but maybe with participation of human rights defenders helping to define that as well, because what I wouldn't like to see happening is that that's just defined by statutory duty bearers and that actually it doesn't reflect the reality of what it's like for people when they do experience these kind of negative um, instances.
1: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, having a, um, a body that can kind of collect some of this information, this data, not just in terms of statistics, but also in terms of some of the qualitative stuff, the stuff that you're collecting through this project about the impact that it's hap- having on people um, in their day-to-day lives. It'd be good if you know, after this project finishes, there is a body, you know, maybe the Scottish Human Rights Commission, who will want to kind of take on a bit of a role in gathering and storing and collecting this kind of information, because I think that that's a really valuable uh, data bank that we could have. Globally, is it national human rights institutions who generally collect that information? It is. I mean, in some countries, it is a statutory obligation. Often it's part of a kind of peace treaty that comes about in post-conflicts, Societies when it's clear that there's going to be persecution of human rights defenders. Um, but but often it is a kind of independent body, such as a National Human Rights Institute, who, who will do that, or um, kind of commissions or, or courts as well, um, that, that can um, collect data on the kind of cases that they're seeing coming through the, the courts, too. So, so, yes, it has to be an independent body and somewhere where that information can be securely stored as well, because what we often see is that you know when you've got information about human rights defenders people want to get hold of that information um to to be able to identify them to to target them further so it has to be somewhere that's that's very secure um and and trusted uh by human rights defenders themselves
0: one of the things that um gave me hope though was when um, I had a wonderful conversation with two children's human rights defenders who had been to Geneva and spoken at the UN um, around children's human rights um, and I, when I spoke to them they said that they felt they had the space to raise issues with adults who listened and took them seriously they felt empowered because they had the incredible support of the children's parliament Um, and they had raised issues locally which had made a difference. The adults had listened to them and taken action and they'd raised issues with the Scottish Cabinet around poverty, around what, what children needed to flourish. And so that kind of struck me that there was something happening brilliantly with children's human rights defenders. Is there something that we need to learn from our children about standing up for human rights?
1: Absolutely. I mean, if ever I need to be recharged as a campaigner, I talk to young activists because their enthusiasm is infectious. And it also just, again, it makes you feel so optimistic for the future. You just think, oh, it's not all bad. Like these people are, are coming up and they're going to kind of sort the world out. Um, but also what I found like with campaigning over the years is that the people that we're campaigning against, whether they're corporations or governments, local authorities, whoever, they're used to de- Dealing with people like us. They're used to dealing with kind of professional campaigners or even um, kind of adults who are, you know, activists or whatever. Um, They've got all of the strategies and they're used to um, campaigning. Whenever we have worked with um, young people, children and young people, the look on of horror on the faces of people in power when they're confronted with a bunch of young people is just immense. Like I think that there's a real, like genuine um, power. That young people have and they don't realise actually how terrifying they can be to people in power who don't know how to handle children in the same way. They know, as I say, all of the strategies of how to kind of silence us and um, uh, you know, kind of work away at our resilience but when um uh, confronted with a, a group of children or young people i think that they are a bit uh, you know rabbit in the headlights so we need to use that more and more and children need to realize and young people need to realize the power that they have as well
0: yes yeah, certainly in terms of holding um the states and duty bearers to account. Um, I've seen that brilliantly happen with with children who are, you know, under the age of 12. Um, And at the national sitting of the Children's Parliament a couple of years ago, um, it it was incredible to see um, children holding public authorities to account for their rights. Um, And the UNCRC, incorporation bill here in Scotland certainly gives us that opportunity to be learning um, and supporting children even more to hold public authorities to account. What, what's your reflection on the UNCRC and what opportunities that brings for us?
1: I think I think there's Lowe's again. It's been such a trailblazer for um, further incorporation of other international treaties, and it really has got to this stage because of the activism of children and young people as well. It just wouldn't have happened. Um, and actually, the the rest of the human rights community are kind of racing to catch up with where they are on there. One of the kind of um, elements to the the CRC that I think is is most groundbreaking um, is around uh, the need to bring children's voices into decision making, the need to consult with children and young people, um, and the right to participation is throughout human rights is um, you know uh, echoed in all of the treaties. But I think it's it's more strongly represented and so much more central to children's rights because children don't have that uh, democratic mechanisms that. Um, as adults do so so there's a far more kind of elaborate framework around that and and as soon as local authorities, um, ministers, departments, whatever, get used to that way of working and having to bring children and young people into decision making, it will then make it actually easier for adults (laughs) to follow on after that as well. And for more and more kind of individuals and communities uh, to be at the heart of decision making, not just consulted with, not just kind of told about a decision that's happening, but actively involved and always at the table when decisions are being made about their rights or things that impact on them uh, both like children but also disabled people and their organisations have always been at the forefront of making sure that those voices have been heard um, and, and again that's kicking open doors for, for so many other groups.
0: Yeah I think we, we definitely need to learn from children's human rights defenders because it seems that they weren't facing the same challenges that um, adult human rights defenders were facing so there's definitely um, something that we, we need to, we need to learn from that process to um, understand why the culture is different, um, given who is is actually making the representation for their rights and claiming their rights. Um, What brings you hope, um,
1: Naomi? Oh <laughs> well in dark days it, it, you have to kind of scrabble around for it but certainly as I say it's um it's looking at so many of the um, amazing uh, human rights defenders out there I, it's incredible privilege working for the organization I do because I get to meet some of the most incredible people and people who have um suffered horrific abuse and harassment in the line of their work but are still happy and are still like find joy in you know dancing or um you know uh going to the pictures or whatever um and people who you kind of put on a pedestal and think you're um just an incredible person realizing that they're they're a human being as well and seem even more incredible because of that so it's certainly like the the kind of moments that stick with me most in my line of work has been the incredible human rights defenders that I've met the work that they do um and how they manage to also just maintain a uh a, a life uh, um, outside of that as well um, uh, is always is always really incredible. And I think also in Scotland we have got a really great opportunity. You know we have got a more um, positive environment for human rights in Scotland. We've got go, have incorporated the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We're going to incorporate more treaties. Now is a really good time for us also to start looking at legal protections around human rights defenders as well, and all of the issues that have been brought up in the conversations you've been having how do we address that like now is the most kind of positive time that we can be using to address it once we're incorporating human rights in law at the same time what goes hand in hand with that is the protections of the individuals who are striving to um make those those human rights a reality in people's lives you you don't human rights are not just something that kind of get given to you by the parliament there's something that have to be struggled for and um and constantly fought for and won and these people are at the front uh forefront of that struggle um and so at the same time that we're talking about putting these rights into law we also have to be looking at those people who are going to help us realize those rights also being protected what do you think
0: then that human rights defenders need to flourish in Scotland? Are there, are there key practical things that we can do or, or ideas that you might have that um, would help us to sustain that growing movement of people in Scotland who are standing up to name and claim their rights?
1: I think um, lots of things that that we've talked about already including um, uh, self-care um, networks where they can get peer support you know any kind of skills training that they need around um, uh, media or or legal training or any of that kind of support there's there's lots of those kind of practical things that various different organizations can can help with but I think ultimately it's kind of going back to the the core issue that we Address right at the beginning which is the term human rights defender like actually if people start seeing themselves in that way and realizing that there is an entire framework that they can tap into um, and that they uh, a whole network that they can start building of people who are similar to them and um, facing similar challenges um, I actually think that will the will really help people on on an individual and personal level Um, it's you know I think it's a very strong term um, and it also has a lot of kind of international backing um to to what it is to be a human rights defender so i think people need to start realizing they are human rights defenders (laughs) do you have a final message for um the duty bearers in scotland
0: around how they can protect um human rights defenders in scotland
1: well, I guess my main message was, we're coming for you. <laughs> that they like, and like people need to be um, uh, open to that and open to that kind of challenge, um, and not, you know, respond in a defensive or even aggressive way towards people who are challenging them. Um, so yes, I think that they need to start thinking differently about human rights. They need to start thinking differently about um, not. Being just people in power, but as the term suggests, they're duty bearers. They have duties um, to to the um, people that uh, either beneficiaries or the people that they're they're dealing with. Um, so yeah, I think it's about them starting to to understand their own responsibilities um, towards uh, people who are are criticizing them and working with them. And a
0: final message for human rights defenders currently in Scotland or people who are on the cusp of that activism and wanting to stand up for human rights but not quite sure if they're ready yet. Do you have a final message? Um, for them?
1: I think it's to, to realise that they're not alone there are there are other people doing um, similar work and they should be reaching out and connecting with those people because the best support that you can get is from people who understand what it is that you're going through and that support is there, don't be worried about asking for help, like you're not a superhuman, no one is supposed to be and as soon as you do ask for that help there'll be lots of um, people out there who can, who can help provide that too, so yeah, really Reach out um, and, and yet yeah, identify friends and networks that can support you. Great.
0: Thank you so much, Naomi, for your time today and for being on this journey around um, what human rights defenders need um, in Scotland. For me, it feels like a pebble in the pond. Mm-hmm. And let's see where the ripples go in the back of some of these conversations that we've been having in Scotland. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where some of those ripples actually go to be... And in practice, supporting people on the ground as we continue to build this movement of people who are speaking truth to power and changing systems and transforming um, how human rights are activated in Scotland. So thanks once again, Naomi, oh, for you. being part of this
1: process. Great. Thanks very much.